This New America NYC event was recorded on October 1st, 2015, and is titled Living City, Living Wage, The New New York Activists, and features Dorian Warren, Diana Furchgott Roth, Sarah Maslin Neer, Kendall Fells, Jessamine Rodriguez, and Georgia Levinson Cohane. I'm at New America, where I run the Profits and Purpose Program, uh, which really explores a number of issues um, at the intersection of business and society. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in, in innovation and entrepreneurial activity and change making across the sectors, um, particularly in nonprofit, public, private sector, how they come together. Um, I'm grateful for Tyler Bug and Margaret Street, I believe, are my colleagues from New America here tonight. So thank you all for coming and thank you. And I'm delighted. We, uh, this is a terrific panel um, and lineup. A little bit of background into the um, New New York Activist series. That I guess we have two of them now, so two makes a series. Um, what we had hoped to do, I think, um, is join forces with the, the Museum in New America to really think about a whole bunch of challenges facing, um, facing the city and, and think about ways that we could bring together both analysts and activists to explore these issues. So I think um, we've done this once with um, environmental activism in the city, and tonight we're hoping to really get at the issue of um, the living wage and the minimum wage, and I think we have a fantastic lineup, uh, both of um, the, the sort of first-rate scholars and analysts and chroniclers, but also people who are actually doing the work on the front lines, and I'm sorry that we don't have, um, we don't have Kendall here this evening to talk specifically about the fight for 15, but I think we also have folks who can really talk to his work um, and give terrific examples of their own. Uh, Living city, living wage. Uh, it's a little bit of a bait and switch tonight. I think I can say that we we were we, we promised to talk a fair amount about the minimum wage and what that means. Um, but I think really what we're we're doing, um, all of us, is is thinking about the issue of wage um, in a much broader context of opportunity, mobility, um, affordability, and what that really means in a place like New York and in communities. I think around the country. And um, Sarah mentioned. Affordable New York and the Jacob Rees exhibit come up here. I think they're two um, terrific examples that suggest that in fact wage may not be the only lever when we're thinking about labor markets. There are there are certainly others, and they also remind us the work here and at New America that issues of race, class, immigration, intergenerational poverty, all of these that are related to wage are not new, and they have been with us um, as a city and a country for a long time. And I think tonight we're using the lens of wage to see. Um, if we can explore new ways people are sort of grappling with some of these issues. So thank you, um, panelists, and, and all of you. you. We hope to open it up pretty soon to a, a larger conversation. Um, what I think I'll do, Dorian, I'd love to start with you. Um, if you could just get us a little bit up to speed, sort of a snapshot uh, on, the, on the living wage and minimum wage issue. I think, you know, any of us who took sort of Econ 101, mm -hmm you know, in the, in the Paleozoic era, we're sort of told there's necessarily a trade, right? If you, if you raise wages, if you raise the price of labor, how much it costs to hire someone, there's a trade. And by definition, an employer can't hire as many people, and that's going to lead to unemployment. And so I think that some of the thinking and the sort of received wisdom about that, 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 that basic supply and demand equilibrium has changed. So one, I'd love you to, 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 to explain to some of us why the economics of that issue have, have, are now up for debate again. And two, where are we? Uh, there's been a huge, Kendall would have talked to it, but we can all talk to a huge amount of very recent activism um, in getting us 
in New York City, in New York State, in cities around the country, this is now an election year issue. Where are we? What's going on? Not just the data, but some of the politics behind it. Sure. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you, Georgia. And good evening, everyone. Um, so, quick pop quiz. What's the federal minimum wage? Seven twenty-five. You cheat it. You know this by the back of your hand. Yeah. Okay. So seven twenty-five. And what is it in New York State? Eight. Eight. Okay. This is a well-educated audience. Clearly, you stack the deck. Just since 2009, it's been $7.25. Um, it's lost purchasing power since 1968 when it was roughly worth $10 an hour. Um, and there are now 29 states as of 2015 that have a minimum wage higher than the federal minimum wage. We also know that there are many cities that have been recently in the last two years raising their citywide minimum wage. So these include, of course, Seattle, which made the news before Seattle was a small airport town called SeaTac, but increasingly there have been a number of other cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, uh, Chicago, New York City wants to, the mayor wants to, and now the governor has taken that issue away from him. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Where are we in terms of the research and what do we know about the research in minimum wage? And as Georgia pointed out, there has been economic theory for decades that argues that if you increase minimum wages, the trade-off is that you see a decrease in employment. That was a, a compelling theory. Many of us were taught that theory. It was rarely tested empirically. And so when you start to go around the country and you look and see where have cities or states raised the minimum wage, lo and behold, the sky doesn't fall when you raise the minimum wage, generally. We also have actual sophisticated economic studies in the last decade, there's been a lot of research and there is now a debate about what are the effects of increasing the minimum wage. Many studies show that the effects are negligible. Some show tiny employment decreases. Others actually show increases in employment. So when you look, say, at a locale, a region, a city, and you compare it to, say, a neighboring city that doesn't raise the minimum wage, or when you look at a, two states, one state stays the same, the other state raises the minimum wage. What we've seen some, from recent studies is that the places where you increase the minimum wage actually have faster employment growth. And if you don't believe me, I have one study I wanted to cite, and this was, um, and I'll tell you who the author is in a second, but this study looked at the 13 states where the minimum wage increased in 2013 and found that states where the minimum wage went up had faster employment growth relative to the states where the minimum wage remained the same in 2013. That was not a study from Joe Stiglitz. That was not a study from a leftist economist. That was a study from Goldman Sachs. Street Easy has done some studies on how affordable is the minimum wage in New York City, New York State. They calculate, Street Easy is the real estate website. Again, not a lefty rag. They calculate you would need $38 an hour to be able to afford the median rent in New York City. Huh. So there is a growing consensus, and not from the usual sources, of what happens when you actually do increase the minimum wage in particular places. So we have empirical evidence, it's not just theory, we have empirical evidence of what happens when you increase the minimum wage. The last thing I'll say just on this, is if you were to work at the federal minimum wage, 40 hours a week, full time, you'd make roughly $15,000 a year. The federal poverty line, or family of two, I believe, is something like 
16000 a year. So you could work full-time at the minimum wage and still be living in poverty at the federal minimum wage. Now, as I said, 29 states have a higher minimum wage than the federal government's minimum wage. But just, just as a, we could talk about the numbers and the stats, but just as a moral issue, as a moral issue, no one should work full-time and still live in poverty. Just as a moral issue. The last thing I'll say, Georgia, because I've been talking about minimum wage, for those of you in this audience probably already know this, the first living wage ordinance was passed now over 20 years ago in Baltimore, and it only affected, we, we tend to call these the first generation living wage ordinances, they only affected public employment and public contractors. And since that first Baltimore living wage, there have been over 150 cities or locales that have instituted living wage ordinances, and that had been the way in which this movement sort of grew up, was trying to find power at the local level in cities to try to increase wages when the federal government wouldn't. Those living wage, limited living wage campaigns and, and ordinances have now spread and developed into these now citywide minimum wage ordinances that we're talking about today. Perfect, thank you. Um, Diana, I would love, um, and we're gonna come back to a whole, a whole range of issues. I think you mentioned the, how the Street Easy study is, 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 is terrific and reminds me, you know, if you like nerding out, you, should, you can really go and nerd out in the Affordable New York exhibit because that is huge content, huge data, and we'll, we'll get to a lot of the other issues. But um, Diana, I'd love you, you've done um, a terrific amount of work, most recently in Disinherited, in thinking about millennials and youth and young people. Um, and, and whether uh, mobility and opportunity exists for today's generations of young people in the way um, that we maybe think it did in different generations. And I think one of the issues, Diana, that you talk about in Disinherited is the really high levels um, of unemployment with young people, and particularly in, in poor and poor minority communities. So what I'd, I'd love you, and, and tie that very much, I think, to the wage debate and discussion, I know you brought some slides as well. I don't know if you want to show them, but if, if you could also comment, I think, a little bit on the relationship you see, I think, as sort of wage and, and what it can do or not do in a labor market. Okay. Right. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank the New America Foundation. I want to thank the Museum of the City of New York for having this panel on such an important topic and also for including me I'm really very grateful, thank you so much. And as Dorian says, it really is a moral issue. It's a moral issue how much people are allowed to earn and also uh, whether people are allowed to work at all. And the problem with a minimum wage of $15 an hour is that many people don't get jobs that they would have got otherwise. And in my book, uh, Disinherited, uh, I talk about the ways that government policy is biased against young people and in favor of older people. And one of its stats in uh, elementary and secondary school where there are unqualified teachers who are kept on even though it means that kids get a worse education. It continues in college where kids graduate with an average of $30,000 in debt and have a hard time finding jobs. It goes on to the labor market, and this is what we're talking about today, where young people are kept out of jobs by occupational licensing, bans on unpaid internships, and also, uh, at a younger age, increases in the minimum wage. 
Now, Dorian cited a lot of excellent economic studies, and there's others also uh, that show that the effect of increasing the minimum wage does not have that much effect, except on young and unskilled, because it's these individuals who cannot get their foot on the first rung of the career ladder. So a minimum wage of $15 an hour, it means the employer has to pay about $16.50 when you include Social Security, Medicare, workers' comp, unemployment insurance. So what we're saying is that people who have skills under $16.50 an hour are not allowed to work in the city of New York or Los Angeles, San Francisco, SeaTac, wherever uh, these laws are imposed. And that, to me, is immoral, saying that I am not allowed to work because my skills are too low. Now, we can't really say that employers are going to hire the same people at $7.25 an hour that they do at $15 an hour. They're going to make some adjustments. And some of those adjustments involve substituting technology for individuals. And I just brought a few slides here that I've taken. Uh, this is an iPad. It shows, you know, tap here to order instead of calling uh, a waiter or a waitress. Uh, this is another one that says use our iPads for free and uh, order here if you want. Uh, please order and pay here from iPad. And another one coming soon from Starbucks, you order on a mobile app instead of an individual. Let me tell you, employers are going to do fine with a $15 minimum wage. They're going to make adjustments with technology. They're going to make adjustments by closing certain stores. The people who are not going to do well, those are young people who cannot find their first job. Now, we tell a lot of stories, my co-author Jarrett Meyer and I, uh, in our book, The Disinherited. And one of them is the story of Linda Mack, who owns a bike store in Silver Spring, Maryland, called Silver Cycles. She describes herself as somewhere to the left of Barack Obama. But she hires teens to be interns in her store and pays them, or she used to, $7.25 an hour. She says, and we quote in our first chapter, that she wouldn't be able to hire these young people if the minimum wage were $11.50 an hour, which is where uh, Montgomery County, her county, is going. She says the first summer, they're just good for saying hello to customers and showing cyclists where to pump up a bicycle. So she would abandon her training program, her intern program, her paid intern program, that gave these teens $7.25 an hour, money for which they were very, very glad to have because they were 15 or 16 years old, uh, if the wage uh, were higher. And so they wouldn't be able to get that first job in the bike store. They wouldn't be able to get the second summer where they were paid $10 an hour. They wouldn't be able to get the third summer where maybe they were paid $12 an hour. And this is not just a matter of poverty. Only 3% of working Americans make minimum wage. This is not because employers are nice. It's because 97% of American workers would not work for minimum wage because they can find a higher paying job. So the Manhattan Institute pays me a salary. It's not minimum wage. If they offered me minimum wage, I would say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll continue my alphabetical order list of think tanks. I'll go to the Mercatus Institute or New America Foundation, for example. 
And it's like that with 97% of working Americans. Now, we were talking a little bit about activism. And it's really too bad that Kendall isn't here from Fight for 15. I was really looking forward to meeting to him and talking to, talking to him. Because the Fight for 15 has worked so hard uh, to get the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. But one thing they do, the SEIU and other unions, after they get the wage to $15 an hour, they put an exemption for collectively bargained agreements. So I have here legal text of minimum wage ordinance. I don't have Baltimore, but I have San Jose, I have SeaTac, I have San Francisco, I have Richmond, California, I have Oakland. And these all contain provisions such as the following, and I'm reading from this. To the extent required by federal law, all or any portion of the applicable requirements of this chapter, in other words, the minimum wage, may be waived in a bona fide collective bargaining agreement, provided that such waiver is explicitly set forth in such agreement in clear and unambiguous terms. It's also in the CTEC. All provisions of this chapter, including the employee work environment reporting requirements set forth, may be waived in a bona fide collective bargaining agreement. What this means is that these union workers who Kendall was representing will not get the $15 an hour. Kendall gets the $15 an hour minimum wage imposed in San Jose and in Richmond. Then he goes to the big employers like Marriott and Hilton and says, if you allow us to organize your workforce, you don't have to pay the $15 minimum wage. You can pay $11 or $12 an hour, whatever we negotiate with you. What this is is a form of blackmail that unions are using in order to increase their membership. Because union membership has been steadily declining over the past 25 years. These people are activists, but they're not activists for the worker. They're activists for getting more union dues to pay their own salaries and more union dues for political contributions. In the 2014 election cycle, unions contributed $60 million to the Democratic Party. If membership declines, they don't have those dues to be able to use for those political purposes. So I would like to conclude by saying, yes, Dorian, it is a moral issue, but it's somewhat different from the way that you've described. Thanks very much, George. Dana, um, thank you. And, um, and this is the Museum of the City of New York and New American NYC, which means there's no way we're going to shy away from politics. It is New York, but I'm gonna, um, I'd love to hear from our next two, and then we're actually going to return to the politics as much as the economics um, on the issue. And, uh, and again, it would, um, because we have, we have another activist view, but Sarah, I, I want to go to you next. Um, first of all, congratulations. Um, uh, no, I, I, you know, unvarnished um, <laughs> is just was an extraordinary piece. You, you, you do other great work too, but uh, you know, some, sometimes people really knock it out of the park. And as a as a piece of investigative reporting, um, just really tremendous. And, Thank you. Uh, and and one thing I want to make clear, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, was you certainly um, didn't intend to be, and nor are you, an activist. Mm -hmm. um, you're a rigorous journalist um, who who does her job um, really uh, among the best in this city in this country. Wow. Um, Thanks. What your work did, it, I mean, it's true. Right? <laughs> um, what your work did really. My mom's about to explode over here, so just. <laughs> right. so, so, I know. So, so Who is can? mine. <laughs> um, what, what, 
What your work did, however, was really catalyze and lead to some extraordinary and unprecedented, right? Everyone says nothing to get done in, in Albany. Well, you know, in, a, in, a, in, in weeks and then months, not unrelated to your work, we really have seen tremendous advances on this issue. So I want to congratulate you. I also, um, and I will let you speak, we're talking about the minimum wage and raising the wage. Um, I'd love you to comment on what you, on the genesis of that story, sure. how you reported it, what you saw, um, my read is that uh, really what you were talking about was enforcement of rules and regulations actually that are already on the books, whether mm -hmm. they're about wage or health or safety. Wasn't that a lot of the tensions between employers and employees that Diana just described? I mean, mm -hmm. if a manicure only costs ten bucks, right? Someone's shoulder, like we're all benefiting, but someone's shouldering that. So, sure. But but what, what did you see um, in, in your reporting? How did this start? What struck you the most? Sure. I, first of all, I want to compliment my fellow panelists for not throttling each other, because I'm pretty sure you have diametrically opposed views, so your civility is excellent. Yeah, it's, a <laughs> um, it's a friendly discussion. It the is. The audience decides what they <laughs> <laughs> uh, And I wanted to just pull up um, a number here. Um, what's really interesting, that since my story came out, as you said, the government has uh, really swung into action. Um, in August, the state's multi-agency nail salon task force, which was convened shortly after my story came out, uh, inspected 182 salons, and they found 901 violations. And the systemic, endemic nature of fraud in this one industry, which is not a small industry, um, which is not a negligible industry. Uh, it employs a huge amount of uh, immigrant, uh, particularly women, um, but immigrant men and women. Um, 5,000 salons in New York State. We are the salon capital of America. Um, and uh, that's only just the month of August. Uh, there have inspected thousands of salons, found 46% of them, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, so forgive me, 46% um, of them don't pay minimum wage. 83% of them don't have pay stubs, which means... 83% of them don't pay minimum wage. Um, they just don't keep any pay records at all. Um, so the fraud is, uh, I just got a subsection, 125 women spoke to me, men and women, who worked in probably six salons each. I was getting a snapshot, and it looks like the snapshot is, is the portrait, and uh, it, it was stunning to me. But uh, what you asked was that uh, this was largely, I found, because of a lack of regulation. The laws exist for them to do it right. Uh, there was no enforcement, and the way of doing business in nail salons is fraud. Uh, it is predicated on the exploitation of the worker. The women and men have to pay for their jobs, after which point they work for free for a period of weeks to months, um, and then they get paid something like $30 a day, uh, 12 hour days, seven days a week, and we all know that doesn't include overtime or uh, any of the uh, lovely other things that workers are entitled to. Um, and that's only true if you're Korean. If you are Chinese, you're considered inferior, so you'll get about uh, 10 to 15 percent less than that. Um, if you are Hispanic or Nepalese, you'll get 10 to 15 percent less than that, even in the same salon. Um, so I also found that there was a, a race and ethnicity-based caste system um, that covered the industry, which as well as being morally repugnant is uh, completely illegal uh, as well. Um, you asked me to speak to the genesis of it? How did the project come about? Sure. So um, I was getting a pedicure uh, <laughs> on my birthday at this salon. That's uh, it's a 24-hour salon, and there are very few of them. And I thought it was so crazy. I took myself out for this glamorous treat, and it's one of Vogue's best bets. You know, on the wall they have all the laminated, you know, top secret fashionistas uh, treat. 
so naturally, I went. And uh, it's about 10.15 in the morning, and I'm getting a pedicure. And I'm speaking to the woman, and it's sort of broken English, she's Korean, and I said, it's so crazy, 24-hour salon, like, who works the night shift? And she goes, oh, I work the night shift. I said, but it's day, what do you mean? And she said, um, I work the night shift and the day shift. I work six days a week, 24 hours a day. I sleep in a barracks above the salon. When people come in at nights, they shake me awake, and I come down and do treatments. And the seventh day, I go home, and I sleep for 24 hours. I've told that story so many times, and if you were to come up close, I have goosebumps still when I tell it. And I just thought, um, this woman is absolutely enslaved. I pitched it to my boss. I was a freelancer at the time, so this was about five years ago. And she said, uh, you know, to do this story right, you'd have to embed in the community, and you just can't afford to. You, you can't make money if you're going to spend this long. Um, and I was railing against her, and she was absolutely right. Um, then, when uh, they came to some sense and hired me, um, I uh, pitched it again as um, a sort of call for stories. We had uh, once a year, think you got a good story, pitch it. Um, I did, and my boss said, take a month and see um, if it's bigger than that. Uh, so I hired a bunch of translators, um, just uh, fellow journalists from some of the uh, ethnic media in New York um, who are fabulously hungry for stories. And if you ever have a chance to get them in translation, uh, some of these uh, newspapers like St. Gao and World Journal, and um, they're so competitive that they break stories every single second, but nobody who doesn't speak their languages knows what's going on. And we're missing a whole a portion of the city. But so I had them all read in translation and came back to my boss and said, it is a tremendously larger story. That said, I had no idea about the race-based stuff because I found, or, or much of it, I found these women, all they did was work. They have lives, to quote myself, that unspool entirely in salons. Um, they simply fall asleep when they get home and they wake up and that's their life. Uh, they um, farm out their babies um, because they can't tend to an infant and still paint people's nails all day long. Um, so they spend half their salary on babysitters and, and there's whole communities of people who are like, I describe them as, as Pied Pipers or dog walkers who just walk by all these tenement apartments and, and pick up children and where people live 12 to a one bedroom, six to a one bedroom um, and pick up kids and walk them to school and take them back. I mean, it, it's just existing. Um, but that given, these people did not know that they were part of a system of exploitation. They thought they just had a really unlucky lot, or that's the way it was for them, because they don't collaborate, they don't unionize, they don't engage, um, and uh, they can't. And so I started keeping spreadsheets of just to keep things um, organized. And I had two translators in each language I worked with, Korean, Chinese, and Spanish working with me. So I had them in different Excel tabs, just list for the Chinese, list for... And I saw the master list. I saw all of them. My translators just plug in details. Do we have their email? Do, what was the last time we contacted them? That kind of thing. And one day I'm toggling through these things, looking for someone's name, and I start to look at the wage column. And on the Korean tab, there are three jobs in nail salons, big job, little job, and small job. Um, big job is 120 bucks, 130 Medium job is, uh, sorry, big job, middle job. Uh, middle job is um, 90. Uh, little job, 60, 70. Toggle through to Chinese. Big job, 90. Uh, middle job, 70. Little job, 50. And then the Hispanic page. Nobody has big job. Everybody's at 40. I mean, what the hell is going on here? 
they're all in the same salon. I didn't speak to people of different skill sets, um, or they, many of them. And uh, then I started asking, do you find yourself treated differently because of your race? And people just burst into tears. I had a woman say, you know, the whole time I've been in salons, any salon I've been in, I have to eat my food in the basement, no matter what salon, because I smell bad. You know, I had a woman, a Hispanic woman, uh, well, the other people can eat anywhere they want. I had a Hispanic woman who said in her salon, only she and the Hispanic employees uh, had to stay silent 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but everyone else was allowed to talk. Uh, and these worlds revealed themselves to me, worlds that the people who were existing in them didn't even realize were occurring um, until you asked. Um, that's one of the responses, and I'll wrap this up. Uh, actually, probably many of the people who responded to my story have, um, <laughs> would have said to Susie Silver Bike Springs, whatever it was, what was her name? Matt. Linda, well, that was totally Linda wrong. Matt. Silver Springs. I want to get Susie. No, Linda Mack, the owner of Silver Cycles. But so, you've got to buy the book. Jeez. I'll buy, buy the book. book. I'll buy the book. Um, <laughs> or I'll give you my copy. And you can review it for the New York Times. Oh, yeah, that's ethical. Um, so, <laughs> um, with sarcasm. Um, I, uh, uh, oh, yeah. So, uh, what many people have said is that, or what many um, labor uh, experts said to me is that whenever you see something that is at a discounted rate, somebody bears the cost of that discount. And in the nail salon word, I found out it was always the worker. And what has happened is people have taken this very interestingly, I'm not an activist, I'm a journalist, but activists have run with this. And they've taken it to mean, somebody put on Facebook, I'm realizing now after reading Unvarnished um, that that's always the case. If the meat's too cheap, the animal's mistreated. If the clothing is too cheap, the person in Bangladesh who's sewing it is mistreated. And now I realize that if the nail salon is too cheap, someone else is bearing the cost of that discount. And so there's been a movement to raise prices. And one of my favorite things that has happened in the past couple weeks is there's a big sign that says, Sarah Neer is a total big fat liar. Because of her, our manicures are more expensive. <laughs> And it's in a lot of salon windows. And one of the really special things that happened last week, unfortunately, I was on vacation um, in Europe, but there was a protest in front of my building uh, at work, and people carried signs, no torches or pitchforks, but close, that said, Serenier is a big fat liar, um, because they don't want to have to pay what they should, because it costs to pay minimum wage. It costs to do business the right way. Um, and there is a lot of eruption since the government has cracked down um, People like doing it the way it was done. People like doing it cheaply. Um, but at what cost? And I spent the last year with the people for whom it costs too much. Terrific. Thank you. Um, and there is an order. There is a reason to the way everyone's sitting. And um, Jessamine, I'd love you to talk. Um, you too, I think, uh, in your work, I've been addressing the needs of a lot of the same women um, or new arrivals to this country, uh, immigrant women who, again, men and their families, um, who uh, don't necessarily have opportunities um, that they want or need to support their families. Um, and you haven't taken to unionizing, you haven't taken to the streets. Instead, you're a social entrepreneur, and you've created really an extraordinary um, new organization, a new business model that lives that lives to give these women um, skills. And if, uh, if Kendall were here, we'd be talking about fast food. You actually work also in the food industry, but at a very different end, really an extraordinary and beautiful specialty food. So for those who don't know um, Hot Bread Kitchen, I'd love you to talk about really 
where the idea came from, um, what this organization looks like, what you're trying to do, and how you really found, I mean, you're also an employer. You know, you, you really wear a lot of different hats in this conversation. So I'd love you to tell us all about Hot Bread and, and how you balance these issues in your organization. Great, what, one, wonderful. Um, thank you, thank you for having me here. And it's a, it's a great panel, it's a really exciting conversation. And I would say that I'm a reluctant entrant into the conversation because it is a very challenging, um, it's hard for me as the CEO of a social enterprise that does job training and sells a consumer-facing bread in a business where the margins are tiny, mm. it's hard for me to articulate our position in the living wage debate. So this invitation came a long time ago, and it's something we think about all the time, but our, my voice is mainly absent from the debate because it's a hard thing for me to reconcile. Um, so let me tell you about Operate Kitchen, and then I'll talk to you sort of where we land on in, in the conversation, probably somewhere in between your two chairs. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to say where. But Operate <laughs> um, Kitchen is a social enterprise, and what we do is we help really diversify the specialty food industry. In New York City, there's about a billion dollars in specialty food that's produced and sold every year. It's a huge business. And what we're trying to do is connect entrepreneurs um, and talented home chefs, connect into that industry and, and, and profit from it. And we do it through two programs. Um, the first is a workforce development program. And it's really focused, for, focused on low-income minority women. We call it the United Nations of Bread. And we run a large-scale 24-hour, seven-day-a-week commercial bakery, and we bake bread to provide training opportunities for um, women with barriers to employment. So for many of them, it has to do with kind of lack of professional network and lack of English and, and um, immigration to, 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 the, to the city. But for others, it might be women who are coming out of a situation of domestic violence or who are coming out of, uh, of incarceration. And we provide a nine-month Aid training program, after which we graduate women into good jobs in the baking industry with high road employers where they can be, where they get full-time jobs and where they're guaranteed benefits. Uh, when I started the, the company, we were targeting jobs for graduation at $14 an hour, and it hasn't been realistic. So this year, our average placement wage is $12.25 an hour is kind of where we're averaging, which for our graduates represents a 70% wage boost. Mm -hmm. So women, most of the women coming in, um, this is their first job sector. They're coming, you know, many of them have been working either part-time or have been unemployed or have been working in, in the black market. Um, so it represents a big victory. Um, but it, um, yeah, we're we're not at the we're not even at our placement wage, let alone our training wage. At that kind of, um, we're not at that training wage. The other hat that we wear, that's better. <laughs> the other hat that I wear is underneath the umbrella of Hot Bread Kitchen. We run a culinary incubator, and so on site at our facility, and we're right around the corner at 115th and Park Avenue. Actually, we have 3,000 square feet of commercial kitchen space that we rent to food entrepreneurs. And so I like to say we exist or we run the incubator to help the woman who's selling tamales on 115th Street 
formalize her business and get it into Whole Foods or get it into Smorgasburg. So we have 45 different food businesses, everything from cupcake makers to tamale makers to, um, you know, Senegalese caterers, a real wide range of businesses that operate in that space. Um, and that business is open to anyone, but 30% of the members are uh, subsidized to rent kitchen space. 80% of the business owners are women, 60% uh, are foreign born. So it's a really diverse group of businesses in the program. Um, and those businesses, so we're running a commercial bakery and our margins are slim and 50% of our overall budget is labor. Um, and those tiny businesses have even less flexibility in how they do their staffing. Many of those businesses are, as they grow and scale, there's a real pain point at the point where they can afford to hire people to help them grow their business. So most of those small businesses, as you could probably intuit as it goes in the world of small business, are producing, selling, branding, driving the track, and kind of um, cutting the onions to grow their small businesses. And so we really feel a lot of... Um, empathy when we talk about the costs of benefits and, and the cost of wages. So one of the things that we're doing, which I think is a, you know, a, an interesting oppor opportunity or solution to this problem, and you know, I, I guess why I would say it pro it, it's problematic is that in some ways if we get to a living, if we get to a living wage of $15 an hour, I'm like, that in a way negates the work that we're doing. I mean, it is a huge victory for me politically and it's very much aligned with all of our commitments, but as a small business owner and as somebody that runs an incubator for small businesses, I really stay up at night wondering how we can all absorb those costs. And I think the answer, and obviously Sarah touched on it, is really influencing consumer behavior. So how can we, what needs to happen? And I feel like in some places that, you know, I think now we're starting to hear that conversation a little bit more loudly, but like who is gonna buy the $10 loaf of bread? And what do we need to say to consumers and what work is going in from a policy perspective to really support a, 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 a market and the food on, on, the, on salons that really is gonna support the wages that people need to live affordably in New York City. So that's kind of where we land, is that like, I, I agree that people need it, but we need to really push hard on the consumer um, side of things to make, to make that feasible. You just get Sarah to raise the wages for the manicurists and they can buy the $10 on our bread. Exactly. So Justin, I'd love to follow up and then yeah. and I'm actually, this is perfect because I'm going to work my way back because I think part of what we're trying to do and Sarah as we discussed this is we are, there's not a generic consumer. So all of us in this room are consumers, which as with that purchasing power can be activists. We're also all citizens. So I think Getting so so another lever that we have is really actually understanding the politics and and I think um, and I'd love to come back and sort of choose your choose your lever. I mean, if you think everyone, you know, what can everyone in this room, as you think about the products your you or your business owners are putting out in the marketplace and really thinking about, it, I mean, um, and I'll have Sarah talk about it too. You know, she put a, an addendum in the Times, which sort of said, you know, how do I buy a manicure in the city responsibly, right? Which applies to a lot of us. How do you think about what we all can do as consumers, and then I'll go back, and but we can also answer from the politics as well. So if you don't, 
one more minute on that. And then yeah, I, I mean, I didn't read the addendum, and I haven't had a manicure. Or I think I got, mm -hmm. had one pedicure all Oh, the summer. answer was there's no way right. to do um, it right. <laughs> so don't I worry. I think it's all of the above. You know, I think it has to be, I think it has to be policy intervention. It has to be really thoughtful policy about how it fit, affects small businesses versus large businesses. I think it has to really look cross-sectorally and, and not, there's not, there's not necessarily a wide brush response. I think that it, that it affects all of those, all of those pieces. In terms of how to be thoughtful consumers, it's a really tough question. You know, I sat on the um, the mayor's task force for workforce development, and there was a lot of conversations about creating a grading system. And you know, I know Rock Rock New York, or Rock National, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, is doing a lot to kind of increase transparency in for consumers about labor practices in the food industry. And, you know, the city was thinking about doing something similar on a wide scale, kind of allowing people to opt into a grading system to show transparently how they're paying um, in the labor movement. And, mm -hmm. and I think in theory, all of those things are, are, are attractive. But what I would say, I mean, Hot Bread Kitchen is a social purpose business. And our business, if you dig a little bit under the surface, you'll very quickly realize that we exist for um, creating job opportunities and for changing a labor dynamic in the industry. I mean, I say I started Hot Bread Kitchen to change the face of the, the bakery industry and put more women who need those jobs into good jobs in the baking industry and advocate for higher wages. Um, I don't think that 70% of our customers are buying our bread because of that. And we are priced very competitively with the other bakeries of our quality level in the city. What I know about consumer preferences around social buying, and labor is not even part of that conversation, is it rarely part of that conversation. More often than not, it's about... Um, you know, save the rainforest or, or other kind of issues that are a little further from home. So rarely is labor kind of issues thought of in, in the social buying context. But consumers, I think that their tolerance is quite low. It's really about changing the value chain completely and in, in how <coughs> consumer-facing products work. Yeah, and, and Sarah, I guess I just to follow up, if you think about the impact of your, your this series, do you think that it was... Um, educating or eliminating issues for consumers? Was it that you really brought change um, to Albany? Was it um, all of the above? And if you were to do some follow-on reporting along these lines, sort of mm -hmm. what would you want, or, or in a different industry, what would, I mean, part of what you illuminated was the tension between, you know, that a lot of the businesses you looked at were actually run by mm -hmm. immigrants who themselves had sort of, were not only employing people, but had worked up the rungs in, in ways mm -hmm. that we'd actually want to see. So. Yeah. What would be the next set of reporting? Uh, I, I had pitched to my bosses that I, I wanted to write a column called Rip Off City. Just about every week, touch on another person getting screwed. Um, because, yeah, it's, I mean, because it's, it's endemic. There, there's an apartment building in Flushing that looks like a beautiful doorman building. It has a doorman. And you go inside, and the apartments are one bedroom split by... Uh, you know, eight strangers, each paying 800 bucks. Um, and I, you could trace each one of those apartments to a, a different industry or, you know, just thread out from there. Um, 
That said, it might get boring and repetitive and people might glaze over because the answer is always, this person has a terrible life because they're being exploited. Um, so there has to be a more illuminating way into it. Um, but there have been two sides of the coin of unvarnished. Um, regulation uh, has gone into effect. Uh, today, something that really excited me um, is that they're, uh, I remember it was yesterday, they're going to be launching um, air quality testers um, because one of the things that uh, the chemical uh, interests have said is that, well, they, there's no proof this happens to manicurists. You know, yes, they use X product. Yes, they have uh, Y outcome that X causes in most people. Um, but uh, who says it really did it? You know, so it, they, this sort of these workarounds. Um, and so they're going to be testing. That said, the OSHA regulations for how much um, of these uh, chemicals are allowed in the air uh, were made in 1950 for a 5'8", 150-pound man. They don't take into account reproductive outcomes on a tiny Chinese woman. Um, so that said, there's great things coming from it. These uh, They've been inspected now. Um, there's uh, lots of cleanup happening. People have been empowered to uh, sue in many instances. There's going to be a wage requirement, which is what led to that, a wage bond requirement, excuse me, which led to that protest against Sarah the Big Fat Liar. Um, and uh, so in the event that the owner, an owner is found to have um, stolen money, what they used to do is, uh, so they get sued, they're found to owe $200,000 to four workers. Uh, they just change the name of the place and they sell their assets to their kid for a dollar. Um, so now this insurance will make them not able to. That's all the kind of positive. Kind of negative is women have told me that they've been fired. They're undocumented workers. This was the one place they could get a job. And one morning the boss came in and said, everybody without licenses, uh, you know, manicure licenses or um, papers to work, you're out. Um, other people, instead of paying overtime, this one is so diabolical, they furlough their workers. So, uh, the nails on hours don't change. It's still 70 hours a week of work, but now it's in several shifts, so they never have to pay the time and a half of overtime. Um, so these women were counting on that extra money. Um, and uh, it's a sort of a whack-a-mole. Um, there are terrible outcomes from my story and stories like it that shine a lot of light, and the cockroaches skitter away and then come back in a different way. Um, their positives and negatives. I think the follow-ups will be tracing all those in a very transparent way. Again, I said it, I'm not an activist. I don't have an agenda. I, sh I wanted to show that this was occurring, and now I'll have to show uh, what transpires after it, even if it's you know makes a lot more protests and burning Sarah effigies. No, thank you. But, but some of those consequent, you know, unintended or what Diana might suggest are you know the necessary labor market. Um, Corrections for uh, for both regulations, for regulations that may or may not be helpful to the worker, you know, and for um, a very low wage, or sorry, a low margin business that suddenly has higher costs. And Thank you all. Um, I Thank you. all of you for your time. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.